If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. Let's, well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Trexperts Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real Trexpert needs. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's the Electric be, Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got, the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it, in press, the United States, press the button. And there it is. There it is. And you can choose, you can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait, download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. This episode originally aired as a panel on March 27th as part of WonderCon at Home 2021. What you are about to hear is an extended version of the conversation we had about the world of lost James Bond films. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special WonderCon at Home version of Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I assume a lot of you guys are joining us for the first time here at WonderCon at Home. Uh, so we'll kind of introduce ourselves and what this podcast even is. My name is Josh Miller. Uh, my co-host here is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Hmm, hanging in there. Uh, and our special guest today is author Mark Edlitz. Hey, hey guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and the topic today is going to be some unmade James Bond films. Uh, that's where we have Mark on. He is the author of two great books, The Many Lives of James Bond, and more importantly for this podcast, The Lost Adventures of James Bond which we'll circle back to uh, in a bit here. But again, since I imagine a lot of you, this is the first time you're seeing best movies never made. I think we can take a second to talk about what even an unmade movie is, what we mean by that. Um, and the easiest way to put it is just that I think a lot of people are aware of this, but a lot of people 
aren't necessarily that really for every movie that gets made, some people say there's 10 movies that don't get made. But the truth is, I'd say there's probably like 50 or 100 movies that don't get made. Uh, I think this is very obvious with filmmakers like Spielberg or Guillermo del Toro, who are famous enough that any time they're attached to anything, it gets announced in the press. And so it always gives this feeling of like, oh, my God, this guy's making like 20 movies. And then a few years go by and you're like, whatever happened to half of those movies they were going to make and they just kind of die in development limbo or they run out of financing uh the rights lapse that's one of the most embarrassing reasons that happens a lot is just that uh somebody wasn't paying attention and they no longer have the rights to do the movie anymore um and this podcast very specifically is an extension of an excellent documentary that my co-host Steven made called Yodorowsky's Dune. Uh, Steve, why don't you just kind of explain what that doc even is for those who haven't seen it? Oh, yeah. We just explored um, the unmade. Everyone knows of David Lynch's version of Dune based on Frank ha Herbert's uh, novel. But we went before that, beyond that, to when Alejandro Jodorowsky tried to make it in the 1970s. And he had this big wild cast attached and like uh, Pink Floyd doing the soundtrack. And yeah, it was supposed to be this pretty wild sci-fi movie to come out maybe before Star Wars or it could have even came out the summer after Star Wars. You know, it could have been pretty spectacular or if you read some tweets, it could have been a disaster. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess you can watch the movie and take your own opinion of it. But yeah, I just been fascinated by that movie because I loved David Lynch's Dune. And when I heard about Jodorowsky's Dune, I just need to learn more and more about it. So, but I ended up making, I learned so much about it. I just started making a documentary about it just so I could learn as much as possible. So that's, that's where that came about. But um, yeah, it's been, and but I've always been interested in unmade movies since uh, Cinefantastique ran a little article on David Lynch, not David Lynch's, uh, David Cronenberg's Total Recall, because Total Recall is one of my favorite Schwarzenegger movies. And to think that we almost had a Total Recall with like, uh, what's, what's, it, what's the lead? Richard Dreyfus instead of Schwarzenegger. That, that's what started <laughs> me in this whole. Very different movie. Yeah, that's what started me in this whole realm of I got to know about these unmade movies. So, yeah. And for me, it was I mean, it's funny now to think back to a point in time when uh, I didn't know a movie existed until I saw the trailer in front of movies in the theater, uh, especially as a kid. You know, I didn't even read a lot of movie magazines, but I remember I learned that James Cameron was making a Spider-Man movie. Uh, this was around it was shortly after he'd done T2. And I was so excited because Spider-Man was my favorite comic book. He was probably at least one of my favorite top five favorite filmmakers at the time. Uh, and then just, you know, some years went by and he made other movies. And I just I was like, whatever happened to that Spider-Man movie? Hmm. And then, you know, you get into this business. Uh, and I think everyone, at least anyone, writers or directors, producers, you, the, the first time it happens is when you really realize like, oh, this, I see why there's so many unmade movies because you get all excited because you think your movie's going to get made and then it just kind of doesn't. You got your script, it's out there, people say they like it and then just nothing happens with it. Uh, happens over and over and over again. And, you know, when I met Steve uh, after he'd, after I'd seen Jodorowsky's Dune, which was just such a cool doc uh, and cool story, uh, it just seemed like a natural thing to do uh, to continue basically the doc because Steve's a, a 
a well of this kind of information if you just talk to him for a few minutes. Inevitably, some sort of fascinating unmade movie uh, is going to come up. So for me, it's almost just uh, a way to get Steve to keep telling me these stories and explore these strange scripts. Uh, And I think this is a good segue back to you, Mark, and your book. Um, Because I imagine that when you were researching, you know, you're just writing a book about James Bond and then, right, you're probably stumbling upon all of these, like, oh, this was a movie they were going to make and didn't. And actually, sorry, before you talk, quick plug back, I think a good companion piece to this episode uh, for the viewers out there is you should get the electric now app. uh, So you can see the video of us talking about the unmade James Bond movie warhead, uh, which is pretty fascinating for those who don't know. That was basically a guy owned the rights to make a thunderball movie, even though unreal, you know, unrelated to the proper, broccoli and company bond movies and he basically got sean connery involved to co-write this script this movie eventually turned into never say never again but in the 70s uh, it was going by many different titles but you can hear that story on our unmade james bond part one and two uh sorry back to you mark <laughs> uh yeah so uh, a little backstory uh i was writing a book which became known as the many lives of james bond And as I was writing that, I let my imagination and research take me in any direction it wanted. And then when I finished it and I had a publisher, I had something like 175,000 words and the publisher wanted 75,000 words. So I had way too many words. Uh, And so I needed a way to sort of tie all that material together and have one theme for that book. That theme for that book was a, a, an examination of the character of James Bond as told through the creators. So it's interviews with Bond directors, screenwriters, and it's also an interview book with actors who have played James Bond, but it's actors who played James Bond in different media. So it's not just the films, it's films, television, radio, video games, etc. So all that was The Many Lives of James Bond. But I had all this other material And that other material was about Bond's lost adventures. And I define lost adventures sort of loosely, but it really means Bond films that were unmade, uh, out of print, or simply forgotten because they're no longer available to the public. Something that's a Bond adventure that's no longer available to the public is something like James Bond Jr., which we could talk about later. Uh, But in terms of James Bond films, uh, that became the first quarter of this book, uh, The Lost Adventures of James Bond. And I guess, you know, I always think it's kind of interesting. Uh, what? How did you get hooked on Bond as a kid? Well, it, your first Bond movie really informs how you view the series. And my dad and mom took me to see Moonraker. And so my first Bond who informed how I thought all Bonds were supposed to be was initially Moonraker, which is, as everyone knows, it's an over-the-top space fantasy. It's great when uh, you're a the kid, one after- though. Yeah, it's perfect when you're a kid. <laughs> and then the one after that was uh, For Your Eyes Only, which is the down-to-earth, gritty, violent Bond, a, a violent uh, relative for Roger Moore. And so what was sort of, sort of so great about that for me is that I didn't have one preconceived notion of what a Bond film was. They could be over the top and 
silly, although I didn't think of it as silly at the time, as Moonraker, or they could be more realistic and gritty, like For Your Eyes Only. There's not one way to make a Bond movie. Yeah. How about <laughs> you, Steve? Oh, no. The the first one, I I was like, I'm like, Mark, um, the first one I saw theatrically was, Room, uh, was Moonraker, but my favorite Bond was the first one I ever saw, and that was The Spy Who Loved Me. And I, I, I saw that like on network television. And then Moonraker happened, was happening to come out right after I watched it on TV. But that's my favorite Bond. And Roger Moore is my favorite Bond. And um, as we'll get into, I, I think Dalton might be my second for some. I mean, I'm sorry. I get a lot of crap for that. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I love Roger Moore movies because they were, you know, those were the types of movies I was growing up watching. You know, Man with the Golden Gun had like the martial arts and Live and Let die is just insane it's like cinematic madness those films in a way they were just so but they were like i was watching genre movies growing up i only had a few channels you know and and during the day they'd show crazy genre movies and that was in my brain and that's what those kind of those bonds were like also they kind of played to the times like moonraker was star wars and like we when we reviewed uh, Warhead, they were trying to make star wars underwater with mechanical sharks so it's pretty funny how the times back then we're going with the bond films yeah i was gonna say i forgot to mention that when i was talking about uh warhead is that that is the defining feature of the the movie i'd say that they eventually uh removed when they converted it into never say never again which is robot sharks robot sharks that are gonna (laughs) blow up manhattan or whatever city it was no absolutely Uh, it's just, it's such a big world because, you know, Fleming wrote so many books and there's so many movies that in some ways it's almost interesting that there aren't more unmade James Bond movies. Like when I really started paying attention to this for the podcast and digging into it, uh, you know, I mean, it makes sense because they're, they just never stop making the movies. They, they're always moving forward. Yeah. Let me say two things about that, about one when we think of James Bond, uh, we think of, first we think of the movies and then we think of Fleming and, and the novels and that's sort of it. But one of the things that's so much fun for real hardcore Bond fans is that those things are, are just the tip of the iceberg. There's more James Bond comics, for instance, than there are Bond novels or movies together. If you were to combine all other forms of James Bond storytelling, James Bond comics would be the greatest. I, I, I know that we're, we're going to stick to, we'll start mostly in movies, but there's a James Bond comic where, that, where they have Sean Connery's likeness, where he's fighting a Yeti, like this James Bond versus a Bigfoot creature. So if, if, you don't, if you don't mind, if you're not a Fleming purist, there is James Bond video games and, and, and radio shows and, and, and comics. You know, there's all this choose your own adventures. One of them written by um, R.L. Stein, uh, you know, Goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this whole crazy word, grow. But the other thing I want to say about the unmade James Bond and why there's not more unmade James Bond um, is something Bruce Fierstein, the, scre- the, the three-time screenwriter, told me when I was re- researching my first book. He said, writing a James Bond movie is different than writing any other movie because you're starting from the premise that this movie is going to get made. And he said, he said that, that doesn't exist anywhere else in Hollywood. They know they're making the next Bond movie. So it's just a question of, for them, 
coming up with a story and an approach that works. So they're not they're not worried about financing or or, or licensing rights or, or or losing any of that. All they're worried about, Eon, uh, at first is just what is the story that they want to tell. It's enviable. Uh, I now realized uh, again. Apologies, not used to having to introduce ourselves so much at the top of the show. But I'm just be I. I failed to introduce myself really as uh, I wrote the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Uh, and that was a very unique experience when we were writing part two, uh, knowing that the movie was going to get made, that, that you can ha- you're making <laughs> these decisions and you can take them seriously because this movie's getting made. Where there's always that kind of feeling uh, when you're dealing with notes on other scripts of like, why are we like, you guys are giving too many notes. You're thinking about this too hard. This movie might not even get made. Like, let's wait we can really dig into the script if we get financing and it's moving forward. But it was strange just from the get-go being like, yep, part two, let's go. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it, it, that goes into how to write a Bond movie. And one of the things that Bruce Fierston said uh, is that when, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with them, Eon, that they're not, they know where the dead ends are. So they're not trying to say, well, this character, this tertiary character needs a character arc. They, they know, you know, for, when, when he's specifically he was talking about the Pierce Brosnan films and not not the Daniel Craig. But in his experience, it's not like he needed to create an arc for Q. He didn't need to create an arc for M or, or Moneypenny. He knew that the, how these characters were to function within his film. And so writing a Bond movie is, is, a, is, a, is also a different experience. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, no, was, enviable. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about your book, first off, is the cover because it's Timothy Dalton's on the cover. And it has and it's this great visual of like, it's, it's like he's being faded away or something. It, it's just, I, yeah, I love the cover of your book, man, because immediately when I see it, I'm like, Timothy Dalton, like, you know, I, he's like the Boba Fett of James Bonds for me because it's just like he's so mysterious. I never got enough of him. And I just love that cover, the cover art of it. Right. Thank you. Uh, it's Sean Longmore who, who did this fabulous cover of Timothy Dalton Bond in his classic. Tux Wait, hold the book and, back and, up while you're talking. And, and doing the Thanos, sort of like a Thanos snap where you see uh, Dalton disappearing into the ether indicating that's, you know, as his movies did. They just sort of disappeared. Well, and one of the reasons we wanted to have you on and we're kind of so excited to discover this a book existing is when we were doing our previous Unmade Bond episodes, um, you know, we try not to do too much just like rumor hearsay uh, information, especially because so very often it turns out to not be true. Um but we like weren't able to find that much information about the unmade Dalton films of which we knew there was at least one. And then I loved opening your book and seeing in the, you know, table of contents is like, Oh, there's like four different <laughs> Dalton attempts. Um, and it, it, as you're saying, it, you know, these movies just keep getting made and it's kind of interesting that in some ways that's really the only moment it seems like in bond history where it, it got caught up in what you might call development hell. Right. Uh, so uh, let me take you through a little bit of, of, of how Dalton got to where he only did yeah. two films. So uh, obviously he first he first he did uh, The Living Daylights, which was a, a typical James Bond adventure 
you know, one foot in Roger Moore territory, maybe one foot in Sean Connery. It was, it was intended to be a, a grounded Bond. And we could talk about an alternative first Bond 15 later. But let, let's get to Bond 17, which would have been Timothy Dalton's third film, the unmade third Dalton film. So first he did Living Daylights, which uh, could Roger Moore could have played, Pierce Brosnan could have played, but they knew that it was a, they got a sense of Timothy Dalton in action and they, they did try to temper, they did try to craft it for his sensibilities. Uh, and, and, and that did well. And I, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's an incredible Bond movie. And then there was License to Kill, which they said, well, Dalton's really good at being serious. Let's, let's, let's really go that direction. So that, that was, to that time, at least in my mind, the most violent and quote-unquote gritty Bond movie up to that point. So that's Bond 15 and 16. And then it was time to make Bond 17, and they were intending to make Bond 17. They were intending to make a, a third Timothy Dalton film, and there's a, a misconception that they didn't make a third film because License to Kill didn't do great business. And that's true. The film did not do nearly what they wanted it to do. And that was for several reasons, including a, a crowded marketplace. Uh, the, the film is not as beautifully produced as most Bond films were. They, they, they got a little bit hit with financial issues. Um, and there was also terrible marketing where they didn't inform the public that this is not your typical Bond film. <laughs> and so, th th so there was a lot of problems that made it just that, that weren't in the films, um, that weren't going for the film. So, but putting all that aside, it was time to write Bond 17. Uh, and they were going to, and the only reason it didn't happen is because there were legal uh, uh, problems with the studio that didn't that they was being sold and the, the 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 rights were being leveraged to get to. It was just financial stuff that prevented the the film from being made that had more to do with the studio than Bond. It was, but it, it's not because of Dalton. So anyway, it was time to write a, a third Dalton film, and. When we talk about the third Dalton film, which we'll call Bond 17, it's important to know that there's two iterations. Uh, there's two different versions, two completely different versions, although the second version is sort of based on the first version's material. Um, so the first version, they, they got uh, Michael G. Wilson, who wrote, who is obviously the, the significant Bond producer, was also writing those Bond films at the time. Um, and up to that point, he had been co-writing them with uh, Richard Maybaum, the, the great Bond writer who defined the Bond character for the movies, which is a very different character than the novels. Okay, so the big question about Timothy Dalton's third Bond film was, would it be like a traditional Bond film like Living Daylights or would it continue on in the path of License to Kill? And the answer is yes, both. So one version was more like one way and when the other version was more like the other way. So Michael G. Wilson hired uh, Alphonse Ruggiero, who uh, when people write about Alphonse Ruggiero, they always credit his Miami Vice, who was a writer on Miami Vice. And they thought, well, that's why they hired this guy. Uh, License to Kill had a whole drug vibe. And so they were going for that. That's not why they hired this guy. It's important to make that note. They hired him because he was a writer on on a uh, on a series called Wise Guy, which was a TV show, which is sort of like a forerunner of The Sopranos, which was serialized storytelling, and it was it was more about characters who were gray. 
It wasn't black and white heroes. And so they really responded to that about it. And they also want, knew that he could write quickly because he wrote TV. Um, and so they came up with, they worked together, Alfonso Guerrero, Michael G. Wilson, and they would hang out in Michael G. Wilson's house. They would bake bread. They would go for walks and they would just sort of brainstorm what, you know, and they'd always ask the question, what's the biggest threat facing the world? And that becomes the basis of the Bond story and the plot. They always try to do it. What, 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 what is the world worried, worried about today? And then they base the story on that. And they came up with this idea about uh, microchips. Um, and they had this idea of what if the, the villain could put these microchips in like weaponry or, or machinery and then control that from, a, it would it'd be a destructive force. And they came up with it and they wrote this sort of 17 page outline, which uh, clearly told the entire plot of the story. And uh, it, 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 was, it was really great. I, I mean, it would have really made a, a fantastic film. And the thing that most people just take from this 17 page outline and sort of disregard the rest is this idea of, uh, because it was about advanced, robot, advanced technology and robotics, they had this character called Nan, N-A-N, however you wanna pronounce that, um, who is the villain's assistant. And she's quiet throughout it. You know, she's just sort of lurking in the background and you, he's, he communicates with her, and, but you, she never says anything. And at the end, you find out that she's, she has some robotic component to her. Mm. Now, to, to what extent is, is unclear. But that's the part that uh, fans sort of um, hate um, <laughs> because it's, it's, it, it might have it might been one step too far. It might have been the invisible car from Die Another Day. And it's, that's always a question is when you're trying to push the envelope, when have you gone too far into the, when have you got, when you're, if you're only trying to be five minutes in the future, when have you gone 15 minutes into the future? Yeah. And it's the wrong character or the wrong idea for the wrong time. But if you look at um, something like Hobbs and Shaw, uh, there is sort of a enhanced character and it, and it works within that, uh, mm. within the, within the film. And the other thing to remember when you think about the work and sort of evaluate it is they, they haven't done this. This was an idea that they used for Bond 17, but didn't. And they didn't use it for 18, 19, 20 or 21 or any, or, or, or you know, wherever we are now, 24, 25. Uh, so these are, and that's another one that I think is important to, when we discuss the, these unmade Bond films or any unmade film is we're looking at, ideas that they've had that they're trying out. Um, and, and so this is their thinking, they're like, will this work? And then they said, well, you know what? I don't think it does work because, it's, because they didn't use it. But it's, it's, it's important to remember that these things that we look at, these outlines, these scripts are just a moment in time of what they're thinking. And we're not, only, we're not seeing the conversations that are taking place offline. And I, it's really important as fans, how we evaluate this material uh, that we're putting it in some sort of context because we don't have everything. Yeah. No, that's wild because I love that Tom Selleck movie Runaway. And just to think that we almost had a third Bond movie with Dalton, but like really quick, like when you went back and you talked about Timothy Dalton didn't make the third movie because it's not like, you know, 
It's not because of License to Kill. Like just really quick, I was just kind of curious of this, but when The Living Daylights came out, it came out in the summer of 87, July 31st, and it was first place for like two, three weeks. For, no, two weeks, it was first place. And then the third week, it dropped to second. Like uh, it made 50 million here, 50 million worldwide for 87. And then two years later, 89, July is when License to Kill came out. And it debuted in fourth place and it only grossed 34 million. Like Lethal Domestic. Weapon was on its second week. Uh, that yeah. beat it. Batman was on its fourth weekend. That beat it. And, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was on its fourth week and beat it. It debuted well, in fourth place. And you saw it, a similar thing kind of happened with Rambo 3, right? It was just kind yeah. of, you could tell people were maybe getting 80 but, shoot 'em up fatigue. But it's like the most canon James Bond movie license <laughs> to kill. I mean, but that's why I love it. I, I love that film. But now I'm think I'm looking at this timeline of like the, the events of how this happened, like July, July, uh, the third Bond movie, this robotic one, how wild it could have came out summer 1990 or summer 1991. It could have came out the same summer as Total Recall or Robocop 2, or it could have came out the same summer as Terminator 2. So in a way, even though it's like, you know, I think when Indiana Jones went up against like UFOs, I think that was taking it a little bit too far, but I'm kind of curious to see how they would have toned this Dalton robotic thing, and especially it coming out during one of those summers where I think sci-fi was accepted. So, I mean, they were, I think they did have their finger in a pulse in some way, but I'm a, I guess I'm a Dalton apologist, so I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a good point that it was sort of in the air. If you're, you're referring to all those films, Robocop and, and T2, uh, where they were, the whole film was intended to be about cutting edge technology. And there's this, the, the character Rodin, R-O-D-I-N, uh, is this black clad figure with a helmet and you don't, uh, you don't see him, but he's got all this high tech weaponry on him. And he's got this gun that comes out of the side and, and shoots up and then automatically aims. So the, and the building where the bad guy in is also a smart building where uh, it's sort of like a smartphone, but for a building. So they, the whole film was about technology. Oh, and there was this really cool uh, car chase, if, if, if I recall, uh, with, with, with Rodin's vehicle versus Bond's vehicle in this high speed chase where it's like, you know, uh, Bond's car is all tricked out. And, uh, and so so is the bad guy. So it's these two sort of super cars competing against each other. So within the context of like pushing technology, 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 um, and what it could do at the time, it was like, well, what, what if that became sort of a part of the person? Now, the one thing also about the, the, the robot is that the, the outline begins with the thing saying, none of the characters are robots. And when I was talking to Alphonse, I, I, at Rogaria, the writer, I was like, was she supposed to be like a complete full Terminator? And he's like, that's not my memory of it. But when you get to the part in the 17 page treatment, it's like they, they sort of suggest that she is. So I think it was also meant to be a little bit vague. Like if you think of uh, the end of Live and Let Die, where Baron Samadies, he's been killed. He's been killed several times in the movie. Uh, and then at the end, he's on the train in the front, you know, laughing. And it's unexplained. You don't know why he's alive, but you go, okay, he's alive. <laughs> so there, I feel like there is a, a pathway for Bond movies where that this sort of unexplained thing sort of works. Yeah, I mean, kind of even building up what Steve was saying, 
end you're saying, I, I would have accepted, especially in that era of Bond movies, because uh, like you guys, I also grew up with all the Roger Moore ones on TV and those got very silly in some of them. I would have totally accepted a c- cyborg uh, character in a James Bond movie. Probably not uh, now. Uh, I can't really imagine uh, the current Bond movies having a cyborg, but Timothy Dalton could have fought a cyborg. Yeah. Uh, well, so then, uh, so what came next then? What's the the evolution so, beyond that? So, the, uh, so there were two writers who most famously wrote "Stop or My Mom Will Shoot," who who wrote a different version of Bond Seventeen. So that's one version with 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 with, with non, which is the most sort of exciting thing to talk about. But I don't want to dismiss it because of this this one element but so that's one version and then they wrote a completely different version using similar elements wait this is um, the save the cat guy i'm forgetting his name at uh, the moment i was thinking is, that too yeah uh, no these are stop my mom will shoot uh, uh davies and osborne okay oh, sometimes okay. i thought the guy Both who wrote save the cat wrote stop my mom will shoot <laughs> not so <laughs> good sorry <laughs> your flow no, no, no. <laughs> Um, so they, they, they took the outline and turned it into a screenplay, keeping some of the elements and they, but they made it more of, they went even more Roger Mori in terms of, they really made this for their version of Bond 17, like a pure action comedy. And it's in the opening pre-title sequence, which I think was just a placeholder, but they, it's basically Bond looking, waking up in a, in a room, uh, looking at after a night of partying and looking himself in the mirror and saying like, I'm too old for this stuff. And then it, and it take it out of So I think that was like a placeholder, you know, pre-title sequence and not the real thing. But, um, but that was the sort of the, the tone and tenor of this film on feeling I'm too old for this stuff. And sort of, am I, is there still a place for me in society? I mean, in ter- as, a, as a professional, Do, does the world still need a problem eliminator, you know, like me? Or, or is my time passed? And uh, so there's a lot of like, I'm too old for that stuff jokes. And that's like the really, that's the through line of that movie is Bond getting his mojo back, which which, which happily he does. Does he make uh, a meal by putting it all in a blender, emptying his whole fridge and putting every content in a blender? <laughs> as one <laughs> does. Yeah, as one does in those movies. Anyway, that's what I was thinking of when you were saying that, Timothy Dalton doing that. He, um. There's one scene where he hides in a a rodeo, so he he dons a a cowboy disguise. So it, Timothy Dawn as a cowboy as James Bond, it, it it was it's meant to be like a like as a silly sort of fish out of water thing, uh, but I I actually like the idea of of Timothy Dawn as a cowboy. If I if, if you could bam for one second, let me see if I can. Can you see that? Uh, yeah. Yes. Like, I think he, I, I, yeah, go. No, no, Josh and I were texting each other back and forth about that yesterday. We saw that visual in your book and we we're like, holy, we're in like, what is, what? That's <laughs> so intrigued by it, you know? So, oh, so I, I should say for, for, for those listening to podcasts and, and not watching this, which is, um, is be, because we're talking about unmade, uh, 
films, there's no stills. We, we, there's no way to illustrate it. And so uh, I asked this wonderful artist to illustrate certain moments to help the audience, to help the reader visualize what would have happened. So I just held up a, an, an illustration of Timothy Dalton as a cowboy. So there's a few of those to help. You know, there's another one where um, when Bond enters a facility where in, in this version, in this the, the Davies Osborne version, where he squares off against this robotic uh, security guard, which he, he dismissively calls R2-D2 and then shoots. So th- th- they, d- they did for a short while use this advanced technology element, but it, then it really became sort of a, a real action comedy um, where Bond is, a, I don't want to say inept, but he's not operating at his full capabilities. So sometimes he's the butt of the joke. You know, there's, there's this one moment where uh, oh, this this version is about this high tech plane. Uh, that one, the first one was about microchips. This was about a plane, and Bond jumps out of the plane into like the swimming pool on the top of a hotel, and he's and he's he sees Q and and his partner, and he's like, "Did you see that? Do you see what I did? Isn't that incredible?" Which is sort of a uh, Something you wouldn't expect, at least for me, I wouldn't expect yeah, Bond yeah. to say that. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing about the, wow. this joke. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow, look at me. But the thing about even that is that's them trying out jokes. That's the writers trying out jokes. And you could easily take out those jokes. You know, this is one draft that they wrote. And, you know, it didn't go through the process of another draft. And then, studio notes and then shooting it and then table reads. So all that stuff, you know, if, if you see a joke that you didn't like, you know, that, that's with, the, with these Bond films, um, the plots are always sort of vaguely incomprehensible to me. If you were to ask the average person on the street and me, tell me this plot of any James Bond movie, I could probably tell you Goldfinger a little bit better. I was just going to say Goldfinger. <laughs> but, but, but can you explain Diamonds are forever, or I mean, they're all they're dense and absurd, and you know, hard to really get your head around. You're not really there for a Bond movie for the plot. You're there for like to hang out with James Bond as he figures things out and goes through situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of this version, uh, he's in he's in bed. And he's like, oh, did I ever tell you about like my time with Goldfinger and Odd Job? And which is sort of uh, we the Bond films generally pull back on references that open, yeah. that are that directly pointing to a specific film. It's more especially like, outside a, yeah. of the like the actor. Like sometimes there'll be little callbacks within that actor's kind of sub franchise or whatever you would call it, especially the. Daniel Craig ones are obviously more highly serialized yeah. than previously, but yeah, that, that they've I'm trying to think. Yeah, they've never done that, referring back jokingly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Tracy Bond's uh, slain wife is something that other Bond actors have lived with. You know, when 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 you know Lazenby's tra- wife, mm-hmm. Lazenby marries and gets killed, and then we. Sean Connery sort of gets revenge on her. And then in Spy Who Loved Me, there's a reference to 
to, to Tracy and then more visits her at the graveyard. And there's little references to Pierce Brosnan films, uh, but, and, but it's more uh, about like martinis or what he drives than like referencing like, hey, remember Goldfinger, remember Aja, <laughs> you know? And obviously there's exceptions. And if you go through diet, you know, uh, die another day, you go to Q's uh, uh, closet and you see all those old uh, Bond gadgets. They're there. But it, it's the most, uh, you know, direct reference and probably taken out. And with these, I guess, yeah, it's just so interesting as we've talked about how these, they're usually, they're just kind of like, well, time to make another Bond movie. And they kind of keep hammering on it until it's ready to go. So it's interesting to reach this phase where they're trying ideas that they're ultimately just like, that's not working. And then they completely move on from it. Do you, do you have any sense of why that really was all of a sudden that they, they were just completely dropping these takes? By the time they were in a position to make the next Bond film, which became GoldenEye, just so much time had passed that they just needed a, a, a new way. In both cases, uh, the writers, you know, Osborne and Davies were talking about, um, they sensed that the Bond producers were trying to figure out what to do with the property and, and with the character and the direction. And so these, these were sort of experiments, like would, would this work, would this approach work? Uh, and by the time it was time to make it, you know, the next one came out six years later, a new approach was taken, a completely different approach. Um, and Bruce Feirstein's approach for what became GoldenEye Bond 17 was uh, the world had changed, but Bond had not. And that was the filter through which the story was told. Gotcha. Well, there's one thing in your book I found fascinating. It's just that it's they had a fourth they were working on a fourth Dalton before the third was coming out, or I just I thought that was how they conceived Absolutely. a fourth a, a fourth film. Well, was exactly. this a reunion with death? Indeed. So one of the biggest discoveries of, of my book, Lost Adventures of James Bond, is that not you know we're always, I'm as a Bond fan, I'm always thought I always think about the third Dalton film. What would that have been like? But there was a fourth Dalton film. Like how <laughs> cool is that? They were planning a fourth Dalton film. And so one of the things that we talk about as, as fans is how come we don't get Bond films more frequently? When Bond first started, you know, in the 60s, you could see a film every year or every other year. And now it's two to three and with Craig even longer. Obviously this, this Die Another Day is a special situation, but there were increasingly long periods of time between films. But so the Bond producers were like, wait a minute, while we're working on uh, Dalton's third film, let's also work on his fourth. We'll, we'll get a head start on the game. And it's important to note, uh, that just shows you how much confidence they had in Dalton in that they were, they were backing their horse, you know? Uh, so in 1990 or so, uh, it's either 90 or 91, Variety wrote an article saying that uh, John Cork and Richard Smith were announced to separately write ideas for Dalton's fourth Bond movie. 
John Cork is a noted uh, Bond scholar who has produced a number of books and documentaries on Bond. And he, they, you know, he really, really knows his Bond. So he came up with a whole bunch of ideas and presented them and, and nothing happened. Separately from that, Richard Smith um, uh, was working on ideas. Richard Smith in that Variety article uh, was referred to as Richard Smith, a writer, an actor, a producer, and a makeup artist. So to track down Richard Smith, I went looking for everyone IMDB, whose name is Richard Smith, who is either a writer, <laughs> actor, makeup artist, or producer. There's a lot of Richard yeah, Smith. <laughs> oh man, dude, that, that's insane. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a, I mean, some of these things in this, for the Afan Tregario interview, it took me years to track him down, like literally years. And when I uh, track him down and then get him to agree to an interview and then set a time. And when, we, when, when, when I called him, the phone rings and he goes, are you surprised I answered? Because I was, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to talk to this guy. I tried, I tried for years to track him down and get him to talk. And so this was sort of the case, same case with Richard Smith and trying to get a hold of um, his wonderful outline for uh, uh, Bond uh, 18, I guess, um, Dalton's fourth. Um, he, he, has, he has passed away, Richard Smith, but his widow was kind enough to share with me his work. And it's really good. It, it was a, it's, it's almost like a Fleming novel. Uh, he, if you're familiar with Fleming's novel, Moonraker, it, the whole first bit of it is, is Bond at his office, uh, you know, doing paper, you know, doing, going through dockets, taking notes, uh, essentially researching. He's got a secretary whose name I can never really properly pronounce. Uh, it's something like Loyola Ponsonby. I know I'm mispronouncing that. Please don't send letters. I'm bad at it. <laughs> um, but, and so he created this, he created, he brought her, uh, Richard Smith brought her from the novels to, to the screenplay. And what's, it's, it's great because you do get a chance to see Bond between adventures, which is, I mean, just for that, I think it's exciting. Uh, most of this uh, reunion with death takes place in uh, Japan and it starts off with um, M is wounded. And that's what sort of drives Bond into action. And this idea of including M in the plot, uh, which we are now very accustomed to, uh, starting with Pierce Brosnan, would have been very new for, for the Daniel Craig era because usually Bond just goes and you know has some sort of gruff exchange with M. Um, and so he, he had this wonderful idea of to, to, to forefront that relationship and really make M more part of it. Um, there's also a scene where Bond gets his fingers broken. Uh, and that's from Live and Let Die, the novel. Uh, and so this was, Richard Smith was clearly a, a, a Dalton fan and an Ian Fleming novel fan. And, but you wonder like, would, would we have seen that? Uh, like in a novel, you go, oh, he breaks his fingers. And, but then we would have seen Dalton for the rest of a film with his hand, like in a, in a, in a, you know, in a splint or something. Would that have, would that have been the thing? I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, 
it's it's an indication of what he was pushing. Um, there's he has a, a line in it, Bond. I make a habit of pursuing unattainable women. Uh, so there was also trying to get into his character. It's it, it, it just I think it's just wonderful. And I should point out the obvious here, too, um, that if people want to get the full stories on these movies, they should buy Mark's book. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, thank, thank you. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm terrible at, at recalling. Plots <laughs> yeah. and, and no, 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 you're just you're teasing yeah. it. So they'll yeah, have to buy the book. And there's so much we could, we didn't even get to. Well, like, I was actually going to say yeah. uh, I've been watching the clock here and we're closing in on the end of our WonderCon at home slot. Um, and we'll continue talking with Mark about some other things that you can hear on the normal podcast. Um, but for the WonderCon audience here, let's, I think actually this, this works perfectly. Let's maybe wrap things up by talking about, you were saying there was another version of Dalton's first Bond movie that they obviously, obviously moved away from to make Living Daylights. Yes. So, uh, there is one more unmade Bond film to talk about now, although there's more in the book. Uh, this would have been a James Bond origin story, which would have told the story of how James Bond was recruited uh, into the Secret Service and how he became a double O agent. It would have had him pairing with a, an experienced double agent, double O agent, uh, sometimes called Bart Trevor, sometimes called Barton Trevor. Uh, the character would have been based on uh, Trevor Burton and um, Richard, uh, Trevor Howard and Richard Burton. So it was sort of an amalgamation of their names. And it would have started with a Bond who is sort of without focus in his life uh, uh, and how he's recruited and how he goes to his uh, family's estate meets his aunt Charmaine, his grandfather, um, who introduces him to M uh, and then M. And what's nice about this is that Bond is recruited to this assignment because he's a pilot and they need someone to fly. Uh, And that's, so, and he was a member of the Navy in the, you know, he's, he's a Naval officer, commander. (laughs) <laughs> Commander Bond is what he eventually becomes. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 that's why they needed him. They they, they just needed a, a pilot, and so they they he gets paired with this experienced agent who shows him the ropes, who sort of gives him all the gives him a quick crash course and how to be a secret agent. And the lessons that he teaches Bond sort of become the Bond that we see. So it's it's, it's sort of like James Bond begins. Um, Albert Broccoli, the the him and Harry Saltzman, as your listeners know, they they started the Bond franchise, and he felt that audiences didn't want to see an inexperienced James Bond. They wanted to see a James Bond who was at the full height of his powers, and so they they put aside this this really really great uh, story, um, and they sort of had that same issue with Casino Royale, which they solved, which obviously Casino Royale, the 2006 version told the story of how sort of Bond becomes the Bond that we know. Uh, But they solved that for the 2006 version by making Bond at full command of his powers, meaning he was totally adept at his job, 
but he was emotionally unformed and emotionally needed shaping. Uh, so I thought that was sort of an ingenious solution, but we were, but this is a fabulous origin story and it would have ended with uh, setting up Dr. No. So they would have really established the timeline. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I think that's a great place to wrap up the WonderCon portion of this episode. Uh, Mark, thank you so much. Maybe plug your book one yeah, last time you. or yeah, both uh, books. Book called, All your books. Book, all my books. <laughs> The, uh, the book we've primarily been talking about is called The Lost Adventures of James Bond. I also wrote The Many Lives of James Bond. Uh, the Many Lives of James Bond it has interviews with lots of Bond actors in film, television, uh, video games, et cetera, radio. Uh, and this book, uh, the, the Lost Adventures of James Bond, is about uh, unmade Bond films, including those that we haven't spoken about, uh, John, including that John Landis and Nicholas Meyer made. Uh, Carrie Bates, it, it references a lost Sean Connery performance, which is a little bit tongue in cheek. And it goes into Bond comics and James Bond Jr. and all that good stuff. And thank you for listening to us talk about it. Yeah. And also to remind the WonderCon audience, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Mark to talk about some of these other unmade films on the podcast version of this. All right. Well, moving on, uh, you have so many other fascinating little tidbits of unmade Bond movies in there. Uh, we don't have to go into crazy detail because obviously we want people to buy the book. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the the John Landis James Bond movie that almost happened yeah, or he was at least working on? Uh, John Landis had two possible entry points into Eon's Bond films. The first one was in the 70s when Guy Hamilton was directing The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Lewis Gilbert eventually directed The Spy Who Loved Me, but Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, was brought back to direct Roger Moore's third Bond film, and he had invited John Landis to help him write it. And so John Landis spoke to me about just his experience hanging out in the Ian offices and working with Broccoli and Saltzman and, and Guy Hamilton. Uh, as they what, what, to Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but what yeah, phase please. of Landis's career was this? Like what it's, years? It was early. It was, okay. it was, it was like early. Before Animal House or any of that. Yeah, it was, it was actually, yeah, it was before Blues Brothers and Animal House. I think it says wow. even in your book, it was like around Schlock. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was like early Landis, which is such was, a trip. Yeah, it was early Landis. And, you know, he, he, he was really just ideas guy. He describes a, a, a pre-title sequence that uh, he loved uh, and that Guy Hamilton told him that it was a great idea, but, but Broccoli, you know, it's ultimately instantly nixed because it had sort of religious uh, imagery in it. Uh, but he, but one of the things that he liked about his idea was it started with Roger Moore all beaten up and bloody. And he said that, you know, Roger Moore in those, in the, the first two Bond movies is pretty pristine looking. He's always, he always looks very crisp. So his idea was the first image you see, he, he's beaten to a, he's beaten to a pulp. Um, and he, but he also talks about how well he was treated. Here's sort of, yeah. My my uh, Pat, I'll do, sort of you could 
drew uh, what Roger Moore might have looked like. Yeah. Into a ball. Uh, um, and by the way, I guess yeah. for those uh, listening to the podcast, it's a good excuse to hop on the Electric Now app, uh, which I think they just added to the Roku. Um, so you can see the images of Mark's book that he's holding up here. Uh, anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah. No. And so uh, he just wanted uh, more to be all beaten and bloody. And he talked about really how well he was treated uh, by Broccoli and how, you know, one day he was, he, you know, Broccoli popped into his room and said, how you doing? And he said, you didn't get me a coat. I'm, I'm so cold. How come I don't have a good coat? And Broccoli <laughs> just immediately takes him out and get, gets, get, gets him a whole new wardrobe. What? <laughs> like he's really, he really just talks about how supported he felt by, by, by them. Although it became clear to him that the Guy Hamilton, Harry Saltzman, Spy Who Loved Me was not going to get made, and so he, so he eventually left. And then his, his, yeah, it obviously there was a Spy Who Loved Me that got made, but it wasn't with Guy Hamilton, and it was, uh, and uh, but so he eventually left. And then the second entry point to John Landis was he was discussing with Eon if he was going to direct Dalton's second movie, License to Kill. And ultimately he says that he didn't because they didn't offer him Final Cut, which is something that as a director, he fought for a long time to get. And he felt that by giving that up, that would set a bad precedence for his career. And uh, he says, now he says he made a mistake because he should have just directed it. But it's interesting to think what a... John Landis Bond film would have been because he does so many different genres. I mean, he does like really silly stuff, but he, <laughs> but he also does, he also can handle comedy very well in, in like, I mean, not broad comedy, but like American werewolf in London is, is a funny movie. Yeah. Very um, dark. It's a terrifying movie. It's a dark movie. So we wouldn't have necessarily been getting spies like us. Um, but I feel like it probably would have been at least somewhat subversive. He probably would have subverted expectations. But if you look at from Blues Brothers, he could handle a action sequence. You know, the car chase at the end is, I mean, it's funny, but it, it's also incredible. Oh, even the car chase through the mall, too. Yeah. It's like insane. Yeah. I mean, That's... what do you guys think about a John Landis directed Bond? I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned spies like us, because that was the first place my mind went upon seeing your book uh, that Landis was featured. Cause I'm like, Oh, that, that sort of reframes that movie in an interesting way to know that he'd been trying to do a bond movie that didn't happen. And, you know, obviously that wasn't his James Bond movie spies like us, but in some ways that was him finally getting to make his spy movie. Yeah. Cause like, he, he has like, even like a movie like trading places, it looks, it feels, it doesn't feel like a, a comedy. It feels much bigger than a comedy should feel. Same thing with coming to America. The scope of his films was, was big. And for well, him that was to always do his it, style. Cause that was kind of, I don't know if you'd call it groundbreaking, but when they did animal house um, and I'm embarrassed and brain farting the composer of that movie, but it wasn't a composer who did comedy, but he was like, he's like, I don't want to score. I don't want like a silly comedy score. I want it to essentially be yeah. scored like you would a drama. Um, yeah. Was that Elmer Bernstein? Yes, or my that was yeah, it. Okay. That was it. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I also, it's funny because we kicked off 
conversation with you talking about how Moonraker was your first exposure to Bond, and you also highlight an unmade version of Moonraker in the book. Uh, when there were a lot of writers on The Spy Who Loved Me, in addition, not just Landis, uh, 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 the guy who wrote uh, the Cronenberg film. Which Cronenberg film? Oh, sorry. Anyway. Um, no worries. <laughs> uh, so there were, there were a bunch of writers on The Spy Who Loved Me, and one of them was... was uh, uh, so there's... Sorry. There's many writers who are credited as writing The Spy Who Loved Me, one of them is credited as named Carrie Bates, but he was not writing The Spy Who Loved Me. He was a he was nearly writing Moonraker, but his Moonraker uh, story had elements that were unbeknownst to him at the time that were similar to Spy Who Loved Me. So sometimes his name gets uh, thrown into that Spy Who Loved Me batch, even though he's a Moonraker guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, so one one of the things I was trying to do with the book is just dispel a lot of myths about these unmade Bond films, including one of them was that a Bond 17 would have been called property of a lady. It's, that's not true. So, but anytime you read an internet article about Bond 17, they always go with the title property of a lady, but that it wasn't. Um, Property of the lady is the name of a Fleming short, short story, but it wasn't going to be the name of a Bond movie. Yeah, I, I've seen that title pop up quite a bit. Yeah, uh, it's just wrong. Well, a question for you is like, yeah. out of all your research and all these things you've looked into, is there like an action sequence that you came upon that like really stuck with you? Like, oh man, I wish we could have seen that. Uh, I, th- I think the the uh, some of the Bond 17 stuff with the high tech, uh, the villain, Rodin, R-O-D-I-N, who with the all black figure and his vehicles and, and the way he was equipped. I think, I think that, I think that would have been amazing. But I think, I, I always think that they get the, 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 I thought they got the character of Bond right. And that the stunts would come later. I feel like once they, once they understood the, the character and the tone and the basic plot, you know, whether he, when Bond has to get from point A to point B, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a car chase or, or a motorcycle chase or skiing, you know, that just, one of the things about that I wanted to talk to you guys about is, is how to write a Bond movie. We, we, oh, but let me, fin- let me just answer that other question. The one thing I will, I will, I will add about Moonraker is that it, it featured the return of uh, Tadio Romanov, who was Bond's uh, interest in From Rush With Love. So uh, Carrie Bates brought this idea of bringing her back and setting that the story. That would have been interesting. And they would have had like, uh, nuclear subs in, in the Loch Ness Lake. So, but the thing about how to write a Bond movie that Richard Maybaum uh, talks about, he says that um, it's really a, a group effort. It's not like he sits, types away at his, at his desk, hands the producers the script, and they go off and shooting it. He said, that's not how you write a Bond movie. He said, maybe it's how you write other movies. Um, but it's not how you write a Bond movie. And I think you guys would know in your own experience, it's not how, you, you know, you, you don't just hand something in and then yeah. it's done. But he says that it's a collaborative thing. So they sit in around this, in this, in this around the table in a room and everyone throws out ideas and everyone is the, the director, the, the, the producers, even the production designer. And they all just like say, wouldn't it be interesting if, and, and John Glenn was 
uh, John Glenn, five-time Bond director, was telling me that sometimes they'll have a stunt to Steve to, to get to what you're talking about. Of we want Bond to ski down the mountain and then and then go off the go off the cliff and then pull the parachute. Now that's the stunt, but that's not a story. That's just a visual that they do. So the writer has to figure out where, where is Bond coming from and where is he going? And so that's the writer's job of, of these things is to take this set piece that, that, that we'll look at in the trailer and that we'll, that we'll talk about. When you think about Bond, you think of him jumping off that ski thing, pulling the chute. But it's now up to the writer to, to, to figure out why is he on the top of the mountain and what is he going to do at the bottom of the mountain. Okay. Yeah. It's the connective tissue in a way of yeah, indeed. the action. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I like one more, one more question. Um, like if, like if you were a movie God and you could have wished one of these projects from your book to have been made, like which one would have been like, I have all these ones you've discovered. I, I, I really just wanted more Dalton. I think that the reunion with death would have, would have been a really, if you're like a Bond purist, if you want to see from Rush with Love in a Bond movie, I think that would have been spectacular. I think that the, his third Bond movie would have really worked. The Alfonso Ruggiero version would have really worked. Uh, the, the, the origin story is, is, is fascinating and they had so many great ideas. And I'm sure when you read these Bond outlines or scripts, I find them, they're, you, they're not as exciting as watching the movie. So especially when you read a Bond outline where they're just go, where, where they haven't put all the, the, the flourishes on and maybe some of the jokes are there, but it's just like plot, 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 plot. They're really, it really shows you how dense and intricate thing, these things are because Bond movies are really mysteries. Um, and Bond thinks he's just investigating something, but then at the end, it turns out to be something else. And you think the, the villain's plan is this, but it's really something else. Uh, um, and so they're always misdirecting you, but when you read them just in the outline form, they're not, they're not these luscious, uh, you appreciate them for their artistry and their structure and their clever writing, but it's not the movie. And, you know, one of the things that I was uh, discovering as I was going through the, is the different iterations. So like for the, I can't remember, uh, oh, for the James Bond origin story the, that they didn't use, which would have been Bond 15. You know, I'm looking at different treatments. One of them is 35 pages. One of them is 19 pages. One of them is 15. And then, you know, then there's like this two or three page addendum. And you're really seeing, and I, I try to describe the differences and how the ideas are, are uh, built upon and, and, and like scaffolding and how sometimes they're taken away or redirected. Uh, but these are really moments in time of what these really talented artists are thinking, uh, but they're, they're not the finished work and we should hold them lightly when we, uh, when we examine them. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you'll see the, the exchanges and, you know, Maybaum's letter, you know, or a thought that he has, but this is just what they're physically typing that day. And we're not getting, 
that he was told that someone said, hey, you know, I've always wanted to see a villain who is impotent. And that's something that, that appears in, in, in some of these um, uh, outlines. You know, there's, there's a villain who's impotent. And we, I don't, it, it, because it appeared in one of them, it makes me think, excuse me, in, in two of them, it makes me think that it might've been an Eon idea that they've always wanted to try to work in. But, it could, but don't know who's who said, you know what, writer, uh, I, I want you to try this out. And the writer might have been like, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Or the writer might have been like, no, but I'll try it. Or the idea might have come from the writer. But we, we don't really know the whole story. Yeah. Uh, and I really do want people to buy your book. So uh, maybe just leave it as teases. But you also talk about an unmade version of Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, but let's let's leave that for the the book. And there's the whole other idea of your book too, which is maybe a good place to end because I know Steve is dying uh, to tell people about your James Bond Junior section of the book. Um, and sorry, now I can't remember if you tee this up at the beginning of the episode or not. But the idea that the lost James Bond is unmade versions of James Bond, but it's also this whole world of more like unknown or forgotten James Bond. My favorite one that I did not know about uh, is that the th theme park ride licensed to thrill. Um, but would you just explain a little bit about that, just that aspect of the book? Right. Thank you. Uh, so... I define lost in this book, The Lost Adventures of James Bond, loosely. It's not just unmade James Bond stories, but it's about stories that were, uh, in some play cases, out of print, no longer publicly available, or just forgotten about. And for example, uh, or commercial forces have taken it out of the marketplace. And that can, there, for, for instance, uh, there's that James Bond first person film for a theme park attraction where the audience was an emotion simulator and you see the world through Bond's eyes and you're watching this incredibly well-produced stunt spectacular through Bond's perspective. And then sometimes you see Bond's arm or, you know, so you, mm -hmm. so you are Bond. But when the ride disappeared, the, that film disappeared. Uh, and the intro to that film started with a short little film with that 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 Judy Dench appears in and Desmond Llewellyn Q appears in, and it was written by Bruce Fierstein, who wrote those Bond movies. Um, there's uh, other lost works are um, there's uh, James Bond Jr. is a animated series that were 65 episodes about James Bond Jr. who in the series is Bond's nephew. And that is but not- He's a, his nephew, but his name's James Bond Jr. But <laughs> Yes, it does cause a little bit of like, how does that make sense? And then the, the, the villains who appear in it are, are Goldfinger and Dr. No, who are all ostensibly dead, um, as well as pun-filled villains like Walker D. Plank, um, <laughs> this is a Mrs. Hot Stones. I can't remember, you know, and so just a lot of like pun pun filled villains. Um, and uh, so you that, that for better or for worse, my book is the the most comprehensive look 
at the 65 episodes of, uh, of this animated sh show, which is no longer available, I spoke to the writers, the, the, the director, the co-creator, even the show's lyricist. And I got a show, hold of the, the show Bible, which explains the, their intentions for the show. And if you look at their intentions, uh, the, the, the finished product is, is, is you know, it, it's a kid's show. It's, it's made for like eight-year-olds. It's, you know, and the, the, their big thing that they had to deal with is how do you take a sophisticated character like James Bond and put him in a format which is aimed squarely at kids? Um, and their initial plans for the show were much more sophisticated than the end product. The, you know, I, I think Batman the Animated Series, which is more or less around that time, is sort of what they were shooting for. Uh, but But in terms of budget and resources it was more like teenage mutant ninja turtles or robocop mm -hmm. it was yeah, popular at that time rambo had a cartoon i'm sorry we about to oh, say something. no 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 you're right rambo had a cartoon like like we were talking about the turtles like there was action figures you know of these things too like they went all out there was action figures there was a video game but the action figures looked pretty wild like yeah, very no i was gonna say very much in the vein of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, no way. Yes, that, that was, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a money-making juggernaut. And there was a period between License to Kill and GoldenEye where it was important to keep the Bond brand name out there. Uh, and it was also a way to introduce younger audiences to Bond. Uh, you know, Marvel does that, you know, where they have different, where they could use the same character, but age age it up or down based on their audience, like superhero squad, which was like, babe, it looks like, it looks like, you know, Hulk, you know, you know, these are like, you know how they, they, they're good at Is it, it like Muppet Babies style. I'm not, familiar I almost said they're like baby hulks, but it, it <laughs> kind of looks like Muppet Babies, even though it's not intended to be Muppet Babies. Yeah. Um, and they're really good at that. Um, and that this, this is what this was intended to be. And they were intending to take a, a try to do a more sophisticated animated cartoon uh, using James Bond Jr. I didn't realize those 65 episodes. Yeah, I mean, that that's usually the, how they did it with cartoons. It makes it it's funny because when you look at it on paper or, or, you know, in a box set, it's like, oh, this show is successful. But for, I, it's kind of like it's because it's supposed to be syndicated from the get go and show five days a week. So season one of these shows are always like 50 some episodes. And then they'll order like 10 more seasons after that. It's a bizarre system, but that's pretty much how all Saturday morning and weekday cartoons do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and as Steve was saying, there, there were action figures, two video games uh, and books and comics. So there's novel and a stage play, right? Well, well, the casino, there was also, a, I also write about the Casino Royale stage play, which was their attempt to, uh, to, to, to like make a Broadway show based on Casino Royale. Um, and, and, and just the last thing about James Bond. Oh, sorry, you were, I didn't realize you were no, just talking there about also, James Bond um, There were also um, James Bond Jr. novelizations and choose your own adventure stories, mm -hmm. separate things. Uh, so, you know, but wow. all those, and, and Bond, James, James Bond Sr., that's not right, 007, <laughs> appears in in those novel, it appears in one of those novels and in one of those Choose Your Own Adventure. And the other thing about the Choose Your Own Adventure, James Bond, uh, oh, there's also, oh, separate from James Bond Jr., there's also these, these Choose Your Own Adventure 007 
novels. So they're, they're uh, uh, where what's really cool about them is that if you turn to page like seven, Bond escapes, but if you turn to page 42, he dies. So it's so cool that you, you they're, they kill James Bond in these little. Wow. Yeah. A world wow. in which James Bond is constantly dying. Dying. Yeah. Because yeah, right? those, those books are kind of dark in a way. Some of them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Choose your own adventures as it is. So to have. Exactly. Like, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that is a great place to end things. Uh, thanks so much to Mark Edlitz. Uh, buy his book, Lost Adventures of James Bond. And while you're at it, probably buy his other book, The Many Lives of James Bond. Um, we encourage people to go back and listen to our two-part episode of Unmade James Bond, talking about the many attempts to make a uh, another version of Thunderball that wound up being never say never again. Um, you can listen to that or you can watch video of that on the Electric Now app, which is a free app to uh, download. And there's lots of movies and TV shows and video versions of all our podcasts on the Electric Surge Network, like Inglorious Trexperts, um, 430 Movie, Cartoon Bar Room. Um, if you want to find us on the socials, we're on Instagram best movies never made and on twitter at never made film want to thank everyone here at the electric surge network including bill ritter and our producers mark a altman and dean devlin mark a altman would also very much appreciate it if we plugged his book nobody does it better which is an oral history of james bond featuring lots of people talking including our former guest filmmaker Fred Decker. Um, but until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.